This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies, Lund University. In October of this year, Dion Foster, Professor of Public Theology and Ethics at Stellenbosch University, South Africa, gave a public lecture with the title The Impossibility of Forgiveness Towards a Politics of Forgiveness Among Black and White South Africans. Some 24 years after the dawn of participative democracy, there is little noticeable or substantial change in the living conditions of the average black South African. However, during the same period, the average wealth of white South Africans has increased significantly. Poverty, inequality and racial enmity are looming challenges to human flourishing and social transformation. So Foster writes in his abstract for the lecture, and the paper he presents proposes the development of a robust, nuanced and honest politics of forgiveness for a shared future for South Africa. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming out this evening. And uh, in particular, uh, my thanks to uh, colleague Elizabeth, uh, to Agnita and uh, Mika for the invitation to uh, be with you today. And uh, I hope that uh, this lecture will offer you something to uh, think about. And uh, as we engage during the questions, that uh, there might be uh, some interesting discussion uh, around this issue. So thank you very much uh, for having me here. So uh, this evening I'd like to uh, address this particular topic, uh, the impossibility or possibility of forgiveness. And um, in particular, this forms part of a project that uh, I'm involved in uh, around the construction of a politics of forgiveness in South Africa. Now, in large measure, I'm going to uh, read my paper, but uh, every now and then I'll pause a little bit. Uh, I find that if I don't read my paper, I tend to get too chatty, and that's not good for anybody. So uh, I'll try and stick to my text uh, as, mu as much as possible. The question is, from where do you speak? Now, this is a deeply contextual question, and as you can see, uh, I am a white male, Uh, actually, I'm not South African, uh, although I've lived in South Africa uh, for about 43 years of my life. I was born in Zimbabwe. But this question from where do you speak is a particularly pertinent South African question at present because it shows the complexity of a politics of identity, the politics of race, economics and social class. Now, it would be a mistake to say that one can speak from a singular South African perspective. For those of you uh, who have visited South Africa, you will know that, in fact, there is no single South Africa from which to speak. There are multiple South Africas within that geographic boundary. And these multiple South Africas are upheld by varied social identities, aspirations, and the experience of what it means to be a South African. Now, within the context of this diversity of identity and perspective, we need to try and understand how South Africans come to engage this complex topic of forgiveness and whether forgiveness is indeed possible or impossible after the end of political 
apartheid. So in today's uh, presentation, we're going to look at a couple of the constituent points of the title of this presentation. And uh, in order to do so, we'll begin, first of all, with the notion of forgiveness and translation. Now, forgiveness as a theological and social discourse in South Africa is deeply contested. It's a mistrusted concept by the majority of South Africans. And numerous South African scholars and activists have raised concerns about the transactional nature that the concept of forgiveness has taken on within the South African context. Simply stated, one could ask the question, why would white South Africans want to be forgiven for the sins and evils of apartheid? Is it to deal with the sins of the apartheid past? Or do white South Africans want forgiveness so that they, they can have a future which is free from the necessity to engage in structural, economic and political transformation? Why is it that so many black South Africans view forgiveness with suspicion and distrust? As will be shown, black and white South Africans have very different understandings of both the concept and requirements of forgiveness in the South African context. And what the research will show is that interpersonal socio-political factors, such as the nature of the historical offences of apartheid, whether reparation has been made or attempted for these offences, the political identities of the persons involved, the expectations and conditions of the self and for the other play a role in the shaping of forgiveness. So it is a deeply contested theological term that finds its reality in the social identity of those who hold it. Richard Carney might say that in South Africa, we have lost touch with what he would call a carnal hermeneutics. In other words, the task of locating our theology within our bodily existence. Now, we face both hermeneutic and social barriers to forgiveness in South Africa. It's strange to think that this is true when almost 85% of South Africans indicate that they are Christian in the last household survey. And forgiveness is such a central and important concept in Christianity. Yet, we struggle to live this out in our society. Now, in this context, the work of Paul Ricoeur is quite helpful. As the Stellenbosch theologian Robert Fosler states, Ricoeur's work offers both a hermeneutic and a mediating possibility for forgiveness. Ricoeur's approach, Fosler suggests, is what helps us to translate and build a bridge between not only the different language, the content of linguistic understandings of forgiveness, but also to engage the very difference that exists between the self and the other. Now, in this sense, Paul Ricoeur has said, this is death by PowerPoint, by the way. Uh, my first degree was in cognitive neuroscience. This is a sure way to put people to sleep. Uh, all this text on the page. But basically, uh, the content of it is that Paul Ricoeur says the translation takes on two forms. The first form of translation is the form of translation that you are all familiar with, uh, the translation between languages, finding out how we can fill 
the symbolism of one language into the constraints of another. But the second form of translation that Ricoeur suggests is necessary is what we might call ontological translation. How we translate the self into the world of the other. And in my view, this is what offers us some possibility. In other words, translation can facilitate a measure of shared understanding, of shared meaning of what the term forgiveness means when it is used in communication between persons of different races, classes, and political persuasions. Now, Kearney describes the first form of translation as the linguistic paradigm. But in addition to this, he describes an additional form of translation that he calls the ontological paradigm. I quote, how translation occurs between one human self and another. Now, behind this second understanding, ontological translation, lies the concept of how identity is constructed and how identity has the possibility of being reconstructed. Recur says, I quote, the identity of a group, a culture, a people or a nation is not that of an immutable substance, nor that of a fixed structure. Rather, it is made up of a recounted story. So the narratives of who we believe ourselves to be are very important. Musa Dube, uh, a very important uh, South African uh, 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 Southern African theologian suggests, I quote, that representations of history and identity often find shifting and salient uh, configurations. They are the contested ter territory and they form an ambivalent resource, a ready motif for settled, uh, uh, for settled verity within public discourses. Now, the point is simply that in such a contested space between the self and the other, where identity is constructed by historical narrative, we need both linguistic and ontological translation, the ability to fill our language, but also to encounter the other. Martha Nussbaum says, the ability to imagine the experience of another, a capacity that almost all human beings possess in some form, needs to be greatly enhanced and refined if we are to have any hope of sustaining decent institutions across the many divisions of any modern society. So this was the, the premise behind uh, the research project that was initiated that eventually became that book, The Impossibility of Forgiveness. And we'll talk about the im in just a moment. But basically what we wanted to understand is how do black South African Christians and white South African Christians, this 85% of the population, understand the concept of forgiveness? So this moves us to the next, next point, part of the, the title of this particular lecture, what black Christians believe and white Christians don't seem to understand. Now, South African society, for those who have visited there, remains deeply divided. The fault lines of division are particularly evident in the Christian church. If one were to visit a church gathering on a Sunday, one would find that in large measure the hegemonic identities of race, class, culture, economics, and theology are deeply entrenched and maintained. 
While South Africans have had to learn to live together in certain public spaces, such as workplaces or schools, there is no such pressure or expectation for integration or unity within the church. Now, this is a very telling reality, because what it seems to tell us is that when people have the privilege to choose with whom they will associate, they choose not to encounter difference, but rather retreat to the safety of the familiar. Black Christians and white Christians have separate separate spaces of worship, different cultures, different liturgies, different languages, and even different theologies. And these are related in large measure to the primary social identity of those who hold it. Speaking at the occasion of receiving an honorary doctorate at Stellenbosch University in March this year, the former rector of the University of the Western Cape, Professor Brian O'Connell, a significant anti-apartheid activist, said of South African, said of South African society that the absence of sense-making among South Africans is causing huge suffering. Now, what he was imploring to those gathered graduates was that they would use their intellect and required skills to help South Africa to make sense of the realities that we continue to face more than two decades after the end of political apartheid. If we could help one another not only to recognize how our society is constructed socially, economically and politically, but also to gain some understanding of the values and commitments and reasoning that hold these structures in place, what he called sense-making, we could unmask these systems of belief that perpetuate suffering. Uh, here I must take a quick moment of aside. When I was uh, a young priest uh, in, in, uh, before the end of apartheid, the church of which I'm a member decided that if the state was not yet ready to model a new South Africa, the church would take the lead. Uh, this is the responsibility of Christians, uh, that if God's will is in clash with that of a political authority, that the church would, would uh, submit itself to God's will. So I was amongst uh, a very early group of young white clergy who was uh, stationed as a priest in a black church in the black townships. And this, of course, was illegal uh, to do. And black clergy were, stated in, uh, were stationed in white churches. And part of the intention in this particular move was to work with groups of people to find out what were the values and beliefs that allowed the structures of apartheid to continue to exist. In other words, what was the software that allowed the hardware of oppression in the apartheid state to function? Um, I work currently, my work, a lot of the work that I do is with activists. And I, I see this very often in the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, that a lot of the oppression that takes place in Palestine can exist because of the ways in which Christian belief constructs a, a political state as some kind of biblical state, uh, the new Israel, as if it's the same as the old Israel. So the, the important thing here is that we need to engage in what Paul Ricoeur calls an exchange of memories. We need to counter the memories that we have of ourselves, but also the memories of the other, so that we can engage in something which Paul Ricoeur calls the shattering of the debt of a traumatic past and an unjust present. 
Homi Baba further develops this notion. Homi Baba is a post-colonial theorist in what he characterizes the healing of history, a community reclaimed in the making of a new name. I love that phrase, the healing of history. And this, for me, is the question. How do we go about the work of healing our history? Now, it could be said that forgiveness is an insensible notion in South Africa. Because of the debts of our past and our unhealed history, discourses of forgiveness frequently contribute towards the ongoing suffering of South Africans. Insensible, as it is used here, signifies the sense of a lack of awareness of meaning or apathy to other possible meanings. We simply have not done enough sense-making with one another as black and white Christians to plummet the depths of an authentic and difficult political forgiveness. The South African poet Nathan Trantral, in his poem Fiction in Estrangement, and you're going to hear a little bit of Afrikaans uh, here, if it sounds strange to you, don't worry, in heaven it's the only language you'll speak. In his poem, Fiction and Estrangement, he tells how after the 1994 democratic elections that ended political apartheid, the Christian religion called upon black South Africans to be Christ-like, to give up the violent struggle for liberation and to forgive their white perpetrators for the sins of apartheid. Yet, Trantral says that it resulted in what he calls a cheap form of forgiveness. Forgiveness without justice. And so he says, after they were called to forgiveness, they all went home. Amal het to gegaan. Hulle na hulle heise langs die sea. The whites to their homes next to the sea. En ons na ons shacks. And us, the black South Africans, to our shacks. En daar het ons langs poelikies tag nante water, waar die gif en vergifnis And there we went to live alongside pools of stagnant water where the poison, interesting in Afrikaans, this word poison is gif, in forgiveness, in forgiveness. Interesting to note that the very center of the word forgiveness is the word poison, gif. And he says that when there was forgiveness without justice, it became poisonous to the society. And so Trantral says that cheap forgiveness has made everyone sick. And he employs that subtle play on the Afrikaans' words of forgiveness and poison to do so. It would seem that what Trantral has suggested is indeed true. The Institute for Justice and Reconciliation's most recent report on reconciliation had this to say. I simply We'll read the last sentence. Again, another death by PowerPoint slide. Uh, The IJR says, Most people believe that it is impossible to achieve a reconciled society for as long as those who were disadvantaged under apartheid remain poor within a new South Africa. So I can say to you, uh, the majority of the work that I'm engaged in in South Africa is what I call white work. It's working with white persons to expose them to their privilege, to help them to recognize what it means to live with undeserved economic and social privilege. 
It's making them aware, for example, those of you who have been to South Africa, that when you look at television adverts, there is a, a powerful whitening gaze that has occupied society. Whiteness and the white life is presented in a predominantly black, beautiful nation as being desirable. The white body, the white way of living, owning what is presented through media as whiteness. These things need to be deconstructed. Uh, I happen to believe, by the way, one of the only ways in which South Africa is truly going to find forgiveness is by becoming more truly and fully African, by embracing and celebrating our Africanness. Now, what the research amongst, uh, on forgiveness amongst black and white South Africans found was that social identity, of which political identity is a part, played an important role in the construction of beliefs concerning the expectations, processes, and content of forgiveness. Now, I can't go into a great deal of detail on the findings. Please buy the book to read it. And uh, for those who don't want to buy books, if you search very carefully, there is a PDF available on the internet. Okay, I'm just saying, I'd rather have you read my book than buy it. Uh, but what we found was that um, amongst these two groups, the understandings of forgiveness were quite different. Now, I used a particular uh, social theory, as Elizabeth mentioned. Uh, my first doctorate was in philosophy. I worked in cognitive neuroscience, identity of mind. And in that doctoral study, I developed a schema for identity. This is basically the schema that all of us have an individual and a collective identity. Uh, so if we look at it there, uh, the individual and the collective, top and bottom, and then that our understanding, our meaning-making of the world is both interior and exterior. Let me give you just a, a simple little example of that. Uh, there are certain things which I know about myself, my individual interior things. These are things like memories. Only I have access to them. Beliefs. Many of them, however, come from my culture, down in the bottom here. The fact that I'm an English-speaking Zimbabwean who lives in South Africa. How complicated is that? Okay, but all of us have these constructions, whether we're Finnish or Danish or Swedish. Uh, what is it that shapes us? What is it that gives us our sense of pride and belonging? The upper right, uh, these are things like race and gender. Uh, being a man in the world is different from being a woman in the world. Society is constructed in certain ways that people like me have far more privilege and opportunity than women. This is one of the uh, injustices of how society is constructed, and then the collective exterior. Uh, a young Christian in Lund will make sense of the world in a very different way from which a young Christian in a township in Cape Town will make sense. So these four areas of identity were the areas with which we work, the individual interior, the collective interior, so belief and culture, uh, the individual exterior, bodiliness, and the individual exterior, social, uh, political uh, location. Now, here's what we found that was very interesting. Amongst the predominantly black or so-called colored participants, forgiveness was largely understood in a collective and social manner. In other words, forgiveness was not only an individual concern, it had clear social consequences and social expectations within the community. Moreover, this group understood that forgiveness was not only a matter of spiritual restoration between the individual or community and God. Now, 
in companies such as yourselves, I'm sure you say, well, that makes absolute sense. However, we'll see in a moment that for many, excuse me, it, it's not quite such a sensible thing. So for this group, the predominantly black group of Christians, forgiveness can only be authentic if the conditions for forgiveness are evidenced in the community. In other words, forgiveness in South Africa will be contingent upon economic transformation, the transfer, the transfer of land ownership. This is such a, a crucial issue. Uh, I really want to say uh, to anyone who has any influence on this, in South Africa at present, we have what I think is one of the most progressive uh, and helpful pieces of legislation before uh, the government. It's called land expropriation without compensation. As long as white South Africans own the land and want to be compensated for land which they gained by unjust means, we will never see justice in South Africa. And the state has a responsibility to expropriate that land. It's controversial, but I think it's true. As long as we don't see the transformation of social and power dynamics and the visible expressions of remorse on the part of the beneficiaries and initiators of apartheid, this grouping believes that forgiveness cannot be a reality. A social understanding of community harmony is largely in keeping with intersubjective identity that is more com common amongst black and so-called uh, colored South African communities. Has anybody here ever heard of the philosophy of Ubuntu? Yes. Okay, so this is central to this particular Southern African way of making meaning in the world. I am a person because of who you are. Uh, if you're in South Africa and you engage a black South African person and you ask them, how are you? They begin first there in the outer reaches of their family circle by saying, my mother is well, but my father is ill. My brother is not working, but thankfully his wife has a social grant and so the children are well. And because things are largely well with my family, I am well. Can you see that? So social identity, the collective interior, is a central part of social harmony. And so for this particular community, the construction of social and theological belief is intertwined. It's enmeshed. So forgiveness isn't just a concept, it's a lived reality. Does that make sense? And so that's related to the collective exterior. People want to live in different places. They want to live in different ways. They want to experience the fruits and benefits of what it means to be South African. Uh, the theorist Saila Benabib, I think, characterizes it best when she says, in South Africa, the majority of South Africans have the right to have rights, but they do not yet have rights. Next, we come to the white participants in the study. So this was a qualitative empirical study. The data is available. If anyone wants to mine it, it is available on the internet. The white participants in this study largely understood forgiveness in an individual and spiritual matter, manner. Now, for the majority of participants in this group, the data showed that they viewed forgiveness as being primarily a matter of restoring their spiritual relationship with God. And again, this is largely in keeping with the social identity of westernized South African Christians. So here's the problem. They did not initially consider 
that forgiveness may need to engage the party against whom the sin or grievance was committed. Forgiveness, after all, they reasoned, is a spiritual construct. And who is the offended party when we sin? It's God. Sins are committed against God. And as such, if God is the offended party, then all that I need to do is confess my guilt, my sinfulness to God, who sets me free through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, such a view of forgiveness would not entail the restoration of social and relational harmony among members of the, of the community. It wouldn't require restitution of social, political or economic structures. Common expressions of this view would be seen in statements, and this is a quote from one of the participants who said, I know that apartheid was wrong, but it's over. I confessed my sin and I believe that God has forgiven me. Now, can't we just move on and stop living in the past? Now, at the time of O'Connell's speech, I was reading Paul Ricoeur's collection of essays on translation and a, a beautiful little essay that he wrote called Reflections on a New Ethos for Europe and his book, Memory, History and Forgetting. And I was struck by the coherence between O'Connell's insight and what I was reading in Recur. Indeed, the above-mentioned research shows that because of our lack of sense-making, black and white South African Christians seem to misread one another. We misrepresent one another. We misinterpret one another. We misunderstand one another. In reality, we simply miss one another. And we live with a challenging past and the wounds of that past are still felt daily. And because we have lost the capacity for safe spaces in which we can engage robustly with linguistic and ontological translation, we make it impossible to share in forgiveness in South Africa. And so that's why we have that term in brackets. That's not my uh, discovery, by the way, I wish it was. It comes from Derrida uh, when he speaks about this notion of the impossible possible. Okay, um, I want to say just two things, then I'm going to end because I don't want to hammer you with unnecessary facts. Um, the first thing that, uh, that I want to say is I really want to encourage you to understand that in the linguistic paradigm, language matters. Language matters. Now, if there's one little thing that I can invite you to think about and hold on to from this talk today, it's about this phrase, post-apartheid South Africa. I encourage my students, and if you read anything that I've written, you, you will see that I never use the phrase post-apartheid South Africa. Why? Because it is simply untrue. We do not live in a post-apartheid South Africa. In fact, if you look at the statistics around economic inequality, around the segregation of persons according to race, you will find that we are more segregated than we were in 1994. But there is a, a far more subtle and pervasive enemy, which is to be found in the aspirations of whiteness and neoliberal capital. People long for a kind of way of living that separates us 
And so I want to encourage you linguistically, please, colleagues, if ever you encounter South Africa, please don't use the phrase post-apartheid South Africa. It compounds the wounds of the majority of South Africans who still live under the conditions of apartheid. Second thing that I want to say, and this is the last thing that I'll say in conclusion, is that Paul Ricoeur's work in that wonderful book of his memory, history and forgetting, he introduces the concept of a life that is lived between poetics and prose. Now, I'm sure all of you are far more literary than I am, but if you look at these two constructions of language, poetics and prose, you see that poetics is a very aspirational, idealistic thing. It's beautiful and it's not always connected with reality. Yet we also need a different kind of language, prose, which is the language of everyday life. And I happen to think that the solution of making the impossible possible in South Africa is bringing together both poetics and prose. So let me quickly just speak about the prose aspect. This is why I speak about a politics of forgiveness. I don't think that we will see forgiveness in South Africa until we have dealt with the questions, the prose questions of economics. Until the majority of South Africans, black South Africans own the economy, we will not see forgiveness. Land. Until the majority of South Africans, black South Africans, own the land of their birth, we will not see forgiveness. So this is why we need strong political direction from Christians, from the churches and from academics to encourage society to do the things which are necessary to see that justice is enacted. However, the reality is that that is not enough. We have certain political parties in South Africa. Uh, I myself was a member of one of the very leftist radical parties for a long time. And came to realize that even if the economy is transformed and land is restored, we still will not see something as poetic as forgiveness. And this, I think, is the miracle of the Christian faith, is that it offers something which says we can't just operate in the political, but what Paul Ricoeur calls we need to engage in the economy of the gift. The economy of the gift. This is the operation of grace. Now think about this for a moment. When Derrida used that phrase, the impossible possible, what he was saying is that forgiveness only becomes possible when it is impossible. Okay, think about this for a moment. Let's say someone kills a person whom you love, a spouse or a child, a parent. What possible transaction could ever pay for the harm which has been done? Is there any transaction that could ever pay for that? It's impossible. And so what Ricoeur and Derrida and Kearney also say is that it is precisely in those conditions that grace begins to operate. That is the only thing that makes forgiveness true, is that it is impossible. It requires the economy of the gift. So my message to white South Africans is to say, become more prosaic. Invest yourselves in the work of justice. And my hope is 
that as a beneficiary of apartheid, as someone with white privilege, that sisters and brothers of the majority of our country would be willing to treat me in the gift economy with a measure of grace. Thank you for listening.